if you will join me, we're going to try to pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 20, and I'll bring you up to speed as we make our way there, so that maybe we'll get an idea of what we're doing. We love to dig into God's Word on a regular basis, on a consistent basis, so that we're held accountable to what God teaches us. We really believe that God speaks to us in a powerful, miraculous way through the Bible. And so as a result of that, we want it to steer us. We, we don't want to just simply drift along based on you know, my, my hobby horses or, or whatever. We're excited about our opinions of that particular week. But we really want to root ourselves into God's Word. And so we have been looking through the book of Acts. This is especially important for us because the book of Acts tells us a story of a movement, a transition from what Jesus began to do and began to teach all the way to what Jesus passed on to his followers, his church. And so we, we talk about the, the Bible um, and this particular book of the Bible. And I'm, I'm looking at here and um, if, if I can grab my boy, Noah, is he Noah here? Uh, we, we went blank on the screen. So for some reason, he, he knows more than I do. So I'm going to have him run to that. Um, so in the book of Acts, there's this transition between the thing that Jesus began to do and began to accomplish and what he did for us. And then he passes on this ministry to his church, to this people to do the exact same thing, that he welcomes us to God. And so also does the church point to Jesus and his witness. He began this thing and he started this thing and he's passed it on to measly and weak you and me. And the ultimate goal, the ultimate result is making of disciples. Such so, that, so much so that the, the last thing that Jesus shared with his people was that they were to go and they weren't necessarily to have all of the answers to all of the questions, but that they were called to make disciples, that they would be a witness, that they had a mission and their mission was tied to their message. They had seen and witnessed something in Jesus Christ that they could not keep a secret and they had to share it. And that message created a movement. And we are 20 chapters in to this movement that began as just a group of people huddled, terrified, because their leader, Jesus, had been killed. And then when they saw him alive, the movement began to spread. The movement began to explode. And it went from Jerusalem, where they lived, to, to Judea, their neighbors, to Samaria, the people far off, all the way to the ends of the earth to the point where we're telling the story about the movement taking place all the way in Europe. So it began in Jerusalem, it spun out of control, and made its, it made its way all the way across to even, I would say, South Dakota. Such that people even today in this room sing about, make much of this thing that Jesus has done for us. So much that we cannot keep it a secret. This is the movement. And the movement spirals, it moves, it, it changes people. And making disciples of Jesus is the result. And you and I follow Jesus. If, so if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't say, I'm a Christian, you wouldn't identify with that, that's cool. You're in an awesome place. You're in a welcome place because we believe that this is something, a journey that God draws us into. And when our eyes are open, it changes everything. So much so that we begin to follow Jesus in a way that compels others to follow Jesus along with us. We follow Jesus in such a, a compelling way that people jump on board with us. And so just make no mistake about it. If you're, you're welcome here if you don't believe in Jesus. But just know that the whole time you're here or around me or the rest of us, we're going to be trying as hard as we can to compel you and sell you on the amazing joy that God gives us in Jesus Christ. So this movement spins and makes it all its way, all the way to Acts chapter 20 where we are in Ephesus. Ephesus a church that was planted. You see a letter that was written to them just a little bit later. A riot begins. 
And as they make their way to Troas and, and communicate with these elders from Ephesus, we find ourselves. I'll begin reading about midway through the chapter, all the way to the end of the, cha- of the chapter, beginning in verse 13. After a miraculous thing takes place, a boy falls asleep while Paul is preaching for hours upon hours. He comes back to life, and in verse 13 it says, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met it at Azos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following, we came the following day opposite of Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we spent in Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. If possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have those... Excuse me. In all things... I have shown you 
that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and He prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him all the way to the ship. God has done something miraculous and powerful for for us in Jesus Christ. He's accomplished it on our behalf, even though we did not deserve it. And he's done it for us. And this changes everything. And there is incredibly good news that God is not up there or out there, but instead he is active and alive and present among us. And he has freely offered, as we sang, that we would come to him, that we would know him, that we would receive him. And this begins a movement, a movement that people are willing to give all of their lives. There comes a point where this movement is, is met with excitement. It's met with enthusiasm, but as you can sense in these words of Paul, this movement also is gaining opposition. You see, from this chapter on, things begin to change, and he goes on his way back to Jerusalem. He's been sharing this good news, compelling people. To, to the people who were religious, he opened religious texts and, and preached to them and showed them how Jesus was not an accident, but he was plan A for God all along. And the, and the scriptures testified that what has happened in Jesus was exactly according to God's wishes. But for those that weren't religious, maybe, maybe they didn't have a religious pedigree, he appealed to them even from their own understanding of the world. Like in Athens, he said, look there, you think you know and worship an unknown God? Let me tell you the God that is now known. And this movement has drawn us up. I would argue even it's the movement by which we enter a, an elementary school in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. God's doing it. But you see this picture of care that Paul gives. And like every other step along the way in the book of Acts, questions that you might have about the church and what the church is, why it believes what it does, and why it even does the things that it does. For example, why Sunday? Why more so Sunday than any other day of the week? We saw that last week. Because we remember on a Sunday, not that you couldn't get together any time of the week, and not that you shouldn't get together every day of the week, but on Sunday for this particular group of people was to declare something about the gospel. That one Sunday, years before, everything changed. When they went to the tomb of their teacher and found out that he was God because he was not dead. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, has purchased his flock for himself with his own blood so that now we have a right perspective toward God, toward the church, toward the lost, those that do not know Jesus, and then toward ultimately ourselves. Jesus has done this, and this movement is described here. Specifically, this part of the movement describes what the leadership in this thing called the church ought to look like. And so you see some words here, some words that begin to be more and more common for the rest of the New Testament. He refers to these people that he draws together as elders, not because they are elderly, but they serve in a way of of supervision, of care. But he also calls them and refers to something else that they do. He says that they are overseers. But then he refers, thirdly, 
to the way that they shepherd the flock. Did you catch all those? Those are words that are used synonymously for the rest of the Bible. The word poiemen or shepherd, we know as the word pastor. That's the most common word we use to describe a leader in the church. But he also uses the word elder, which is a presbyteros. That's why our friends who are our brothers and sisters who are Presbyterian believe heavily that, that we are led by elders. Our Episcopalian friends, they get that word from the word episkopos, which is the word bishop or overseer, which is also used to describe these people. So whether you call me or any other leader of a church, a pastor, a bishop, or an elder, makes as little difference as what it is that we are called to do. And the ways in which this movement relies heavily upon leadership. So here's a couple things I want to accomplish. I want us to get a picture of what Jesus has done and what this movement looks like so that we begin to set goals and pray for the future of our own church and how we ought to grow, just like every other chapter in the book of Acts, into this movement. Some things the chapter, these chapters and Acts describe we'll never be able to do, and I shared that with you. So like if, if you have the power to heal like these are first apostles, then good for you. Let's go to Sanford and Avira. Let's hang out there and let's shut that place down, right? Let's heal these people. Get them out of here. But if you don't have that power like the apostles did, well, then there are other things that we see that this movement calls us to do. In fact, so great are these things, Jesus says that they are greater now that he's gone and given us the power of the Spirit than the things that he was doing. So don't disparage the fact that maybe you don't have the power to to perform miracles. We have been given a greater task, and that is to tell the story about the one who could. It's not our job to save the world. It's our job to tell the world about the one who saved it. That's our mission. That's our message. So don't disparage the fact that you maybe you don't fit into this. But at each step, we have questions, hopefully, about this thing that these Jesus followers do, and the answers are here, specifically in this passage about leadership. So we're praying that this becomes a reality. But here's the other thing, and that's not just selfish. It's that you would even pray for me and other pastors in this city and in this world who by some spark of insanity stand before people and minister to them through God's word and the more you get to know me you know the more you will realize what an amazing act of God's grace that really is and as Jesus changes us as Jesus does this thing for us we have a new perspective on who God is we have a new perspective on what the church is we have a new perspective on who the people who don't know Jesus are and then Ultimately, who we are in light of all these things. The example is the key. All throughout the New Testament, the example that these leaders set is key. The New Testament teaches that the heart of leadership, and for all of us who want to lead anybody anywhere, is leadership. Where it's, whether it's a parent trying to, to set an example or, or trying to teach a child something, you know exactly how this works. My daughters will listen and maybe try to obey what I say, but they will do what I do. Maybe they will obey, but for sure they will mimic. And the scariest things that my children mimic back to me aren't the things that I told them not to do. They're the things that they learned to do because they watched me. I don't know, I mean, I don't know about you, uh, just in the last six months, I have a daughter who started every sentence with the word actually. Actually. And, that, and, I, I, and right before I get annoyed at that, I go, oh no, I wonder where she got that. And so you'll notice I've tried as hard as I can not to say actually at the beginning of sentence. It's because I begin to see that this example is what really is key. And the New Testament says that the heart of the church is in the example. First in Jesus, that we are just like Christ. At Antioch, a few chapters ago, that people began to see that the followers of Jesus looked at and acted and talked a lot like Jesus. So they started calling them Christians or people who were just like Christ. 
And Jesus reminded his disciples in John chapter 13 that I gave you an example that you also should do as I do. Luke described his gospel as the record of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In Acts chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews commanded all of his readers to remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, now imitate their faith. Hebrews 13. Peter exhorted his followers, or excuse me, his, 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 his fellow elders, that they ought to be, quote, examples to the flock. You hear that, that language of pastoral care, of shepherding in 1 Peter 5? To the Corinthians, Paul said, I exhort you therefore, be imitators of me. Now you have to really rely on Jesus to say something that bold, right? You had, you had better know that the grace of God has purchased you and is sanctifying you and making you right and holy day by day to say something that bold. You need God's grace to say that thing. Be imitators of me. He instructed people of Philippi, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have seen in us. He committed the Thessalonians because they were to become imitators of us and then to also the Lord. His advice to Timothy later, he says that he should be a leader in 1 Timothy 4.12 in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity to show yourself as an example for those who believe. Make no mistake about it, while doctrine is brought up here, while what the people believe is important, it's what they practice and the way that they experience what they believe in real, tangible ways that makes a difference. And I would argue that's a lesson you can apply to every area of your life. You can think and believe whatever you think you want to, but in the end, the example you set, the life you live, reveals what you truly value. And so for the church of Jesus Christ, for those of us who find our identity and purpose, our life in Jesus Christ, His example is first, but then our example in depending upon Him comes second. He begins to challenge these people in this way. I want to just walk through how you see the perspective we see. First, toward God. The act of service that exists before God. Paul says, very beginning, as he sets sail, instead of going to Ephesus, he says he wanted to go around it. I don't know if you caught that. But then when he got past it, he thought, well, I don't want to just abandon them. I love them. I, he spent three years with them. And so instead of going to Ephesus, he calls the leaders, the elders, these people that he had appointed as pastors over this church to himself to meet with them, to encourage them and exhort them. Now, you can probably sympathize with this. Um, if you're the kind of people, you know how like whenever you say goodbye, it takes like an hour. You know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, hey, okay, leave. And then you get to the door and you talk and then you just porch. And you, you, you know what? That's, that's real love, isn't it? That's exactly what Paul anticipated. He's like, if I go to Ephesus, we'll never leave. So here's what I'll do. Instead of seeing all of the people whom I love, I'll, I'll just go, we'll go past Ephesus, and I'll call the elders to me. And that way I can just simply pass on that good word to them, and those people can pass on that good word to all the people I love. The church that he had planted. And he meets with them, and he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. Did you catch that example? And from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. I want to stop right here and give you kind of an axiom 
as we work through some of these, these four points that you kind of see, I hope, come out of the text, there's a, here's a little truth, a little thing to think about, okay? And I think this, this picture is pretty clear for us. Your relationships are your report card. Your relationships are your report card. How you are doing can be revealed in your relationships. Husbands, your wife is your report card. You can believe and think all you want, but if you ask your wife how you really are laying down your life for her, that's your real score. That's your real grade. Wives, your husband is your report card. You can think whatever you want to about yourself, but those relationships show what you're really doing. How those relationships play out reveals what you value and it reveals what really matters. Everywhere you look, your relationships are your report card. And if you find yourself thinking, wow, that sounds way too much like a bumper sticker to be in the Bible, I want to show you how this shows up over the next few verses. He sets an example for his friends. And he begins by investing, making a deposit of the gospel with humility, serving the Lord with tears, even through trials. Ultimately, even though he was serving people and and doing things for people in places other than his home, and he was sharing this good news to people who at first were strangers, listen to what he describes what he was doing in verse 19. Serving the Lord. His perspective toward God was service. So much so that he says later, be on guard. Your service is ultimately toward God. And so the second half of his admonition is that they ought to be on guard. Pay careful attention. I'm leaving. I can't watch over you anymore. I can't teach you anymore. In fact, I may not be alive much longer. So be on guard. Our relationship to God is not just that we would know Him right, but also that we would protect that which is entrusted to us. So this, is, this, this has two particular dimensions. First, it means that we know God rightly. The practice of theology, the study of theology, is not just an intellectual or cerebral exercise, but is the process by which we come to know God rightly. This plays out all the time in our relationships. Real intimacy comes not when you first shake hands and you get that first impression. Real intimacy is when you get to know who people really are. Right? This is nowhere more powerfully seen, as far as I can tell, than in marriage. And everything I could tell you about my own wife right now in the 10 years that we've been together and married, including the three years before that that we were dating, is probably completely different today than the first couple of weeks I met her. Now relax, she would say the same thing about me. I meet this girl, I remember one of the first things uh, we got together, and, and, it's, and again, it's, this is relationships as your report card. We hung out for like two weeks, and we knew this was going to be serious, this is the real deal. And uh, we, we, we were, it was over a Christmas holiday, so I was in college in one town, she was in college in another town. And if we were going to do this, we were going to have to do this long, long distance. And the, the first time where I got in the car to drive back to my college town, she, she just was bawling. She was crying. And it brought tears to my eyes. And I, I mean, this is, you hear, like, we're weeping because we're leaving one another. And she said something. She goes, I'm not usually this emotional. That was a lie. <laughs> it's okay. I wasn't usually that emotional either. But something happened when we got to know one another. Our real selves began to come out. And let me tell you all of the most amazing things 
that as I have gotten to know my wife, have stirred my affections for her. Did you know she's an excellent mom? I didn't know that when I said, hey, how are you doing? I'm Jonathan. That, that wasn't like, that, that's not the first conversation, agreed? Hey, I'm a great parent. Freaky, right? You want to scare someone off? That's the, define the relationship right there, bye. We didn't start there. But over the passage of time, each and every step that we've gotten to know these things about one another, we begin to love one another more deeply. We're not just collecting intellectual facts in some sort of abstract database that is up in our brains. But instead, each step we know each other more correctly, we love each other more rightly. So also, as we get to know who God is and His character, we hold fast to it. Because in knowing who God really is, we worship and love Him rightly. To worship a God that does not exist has been the topic of almost every other chapter in the book of Acts. It's called idolatry. If you create for yourself a God that fits all the things that you desire, then hang on a second. You don't worship God, you worship yourself. And if you ever find yourself saying, I don't like that God is this, I believe that he is this, interjecting for what God has revealed to himself to be true in Jesus Christ, for that which you find to be much more convenient and palatable, then be careful. It's not that what you believe isn't meaningful or moving. It may start a movement and people may follow you, but just be careful. You have created an idol. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, to believe that which is unworthy of God is in itself idolatry. Even to think something that's half true about God isn't true worship. In the same way that if I told you I loved my wife's blonde hair, you would think I was insane. My wife has dark brown hair. And to love her blonde hair would be to love a figment of my imagination. So also, Paul entrusts the care of these people and what they teach into the hands of capable people. He says, look, people are going to come. People are going to come and they're going to try to draw you away and they're going to ask you to believe things about God and what He's done for us in Jesus that aren't true. And it will be very, very tempting. And they will draw people away. But make sure you're on guard because your service to God is to proclaim the unadulterated good news of His mercy and grace that He's shown to us in Jesus Christ. But that's also experiential. It's not just that we believe rightly. It changes the way we live. You know this better than I do. Whenever you see someone who has it all figured out about who God is and has all the answers, but I don't know, has a broken set of relationships, you begin to realize how these relationships reveal what we really value. So what we believe about God isn't just something that that helps us sleep well at night because we're right and everyone else is wrong. But instead, it is the thing that God reveals to us in Jesus so that we will know and love Him in front of all the people we also know and love. We understand who God is, and that plays out everywhere. For Paul, it was that he could love and serve some strangers to the point that he was meeting. Did you catch that? Two different times. He was with them and serving them with tears. That's a radical experience of the love of God, isn't it? That's radically countercultural. To love and weep over strangers and to invest your life, spent three years of his own life investing in them. Just make no mistake about us, about this. Paul warns us, it's coming. And we all think that we know. 
Because the second thing that shows up in the way that Jesus calls us to himself is the perspective that we have towards the church. For Paul and these leaders is that they were shepherds. They were to shepherd and guard the flock. He had all the instincts of, as we use the word pastor, which is a shepherd. I want to breeze right through this and give you a really cool example. And I want to show you my aspiration as a pastor and what I want to be as a pastor and what I hope to be as a shepherd. And I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who no longer lives with us. He's still alive. He's just not with us anymore. Okay? Um, this is my friend. If we'll it'll link up here in a second, it'll think about it. This is my friend Harrison. Harrison is a German shepherd. Harrison was our first baby until we had an actual baby, and then bye-bye Harrison, right? But here's what I would tell you, and maybe illustrate what Paul talks about as a shepherd for the flock that guards and loves the people around him. Harrison was better by breeding an instinct at being a pastor than I will ever be, ever. And so just look at him. Look at, look at the features that have been entrusted to him. And this could go for an you know, Australian shepherd or, or a, I, mean, I don't know, a, a blue healer, you name it, any of the working dogs that, he's adorable, isn't he? Are you kidding? Look at his ears. They're huge. And herein lies one of the first cool characteristics of a good shepherd. Did you know his ears can swivel in 180 degrees, each ear, such that he can hear things in front of him and behind him. In fact, when he was really on his game, he could have one ear forward to me and one ear backward to whatever he could hear behind him. I love this. You want to shepherd the flock, shepherd the people around you, love the people around you toward Jesus? Here's one of your first examples. Every shepherd you'll see by breeding is just like this. They hear everything. They're good, good listeners. And not just to what's in front of them so that they can hear the flock and hear what's going along, or going along in the people around them, but they can hear another predator coming from a mile away. He has good ears. He has a keen sense of smell. If anything runs off, man, he can find it. Now, I trained this guy. Um, uh, we have a family member who trains for, uh, for, for, for state troopers, drug dogs, so I used those training techniques for my dog. Now, he couldn't sniff out drugs or cocaine, but he could sniff out bacon and cheese. And so, so if you said, hey, Harrison, hold, he would sit, and, uh, and you could drag a piece of cheese around the house, and then go, and he'd wait, he'd freaking out, and you'd go, find it. And he would go and sniff out the whole house and bring back the cheese, and we'd party, it was awesome. Again, not useful, but really adorable. He had a keen sense of smell. He just had a sense about him by breeding an instinct and, and how the Creator made him that's better than I'll ever know. He just he sensed things. He had a way of knowing. He was so sensitive to things. He was always aware, not only about what he could smell, but he, could, he just knew what was happening. So much so that even if the tone of our voice changed, his posture changed. He had a great sense. Great sense of smell, great sense of awareness. There's another thing they had, though. And make no mistake about it, this is the most adorable and the most amazing. This is baby Harper when she was, I don't know, a couple weeks old. And this is Harrison, a good shepherd, laying right next to her. And they were thinking, why on earth would you get rid of such a good dog? I don't know. That's a good question. But there's this really cool instinct of a shepherd that he has even better than me. Endowed in him by the Creator. The monks of New Skeet would say are even a picture of agape gospel love. And that's this inherent... I didn't tell him to love this little girl. 
I didn't tell him that he should protect her. He just did it. He had this sense of hurting and keeping people together that, that overwhelmed him. So much so that when I taught him, uh, when I taught him how to do something really cool, um, hurting dogs don't usually do this well, I taught him how to, to, to catch a frisbee. I had to teach him how to fetch things, not, because he's not a retriever, he just doesn't go get things. I had to teach him how to retrieve things by, by teaching them how to herd them. So the way I taught him how to fetch a frisbee was with multiple frisbees. And when I had multiple frisbees and I took one, his natural instinct was to draw that one lost frisbee back to himself. Do you hear Jesus? You get it? You get it? Lost coin, lost son? Getting it? Lost sheep? Right? And, and I couldn't just say, go get it, because that didn't really inspire him. But if I had more than one frisbee and he knew that one was gone, he had to bring the other one back. Because his instinct to bring things together and gather them together, he, he didn't like them separate. That's what a good shepherd does. That's the way we care for the people around us, isn't it? Doesn't a good friend sense when you begin to wander and say, hey man, what's going on? Where are you going? But the last thing I see here, he did that because his master commanded him to. And more than anything else, he had the keenest sense of his master's voice. And what made him a good shepherd, a German shepherd, German, albeit a little fired up, right? A little uppity. Was that he could hear, understand, and obey his master's voice. Whatever I told him to do, he would do. Not Shelby. He ate Shelby's sack lunch. Shelby could yell and do whatever she wanted to. She would sort of obey. But if I raised my voice, he immediately knew his master was speaking, and he would obey. As you hear Paul tell of all the things that make for a good leader, I hope you are beginning to be inspired even by what God has called us to do. We deeply care for one another. We'll, we'll, we'll sit up at night we'll, did you, I mean, with tears and with trials. We will love and watch over one another. But here's what I say. For some of you, maybe, maybe the calling for you is that one day you need to be a pastor, elder, church planter, bishop here with Connection Church, and God's stirring that in you. Let us pray that we take the lesson from the Good Shepherd Jesus and all the pictures of the Good Shepherd that we see around us. We're just under shepherds. And just like Harrison, maybe point to the better shepherd, the Good Shepherd. The shepherd that, as he shares with us in John chapter 10, lays down his life for his sheep. And you'll say to yourself, well, that's insane. Why would you lay down your life for a sheep? Lamb. We eat lamb. We slaughter a lamb. We enjoy him. We slaughter lamb. And I would share with you, yes, and so also the good shepherd identified with his sheep so much that he became the slaughtered and slain lamb of God so that his sheep would never know pain, that his sheep would never know the depths of hell. That's how good our shepherd is. That's how good he is. Pray for me. Pray that these are the kinds of instincts that happen in me. So this means that there's a picture of protection and care, but there's also a, a picture of feeding. A shepherd provides for a sheep. The good shepherd that ultimately is fulfilled by Jesus and it's pictured for us in Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd 
And because he's such a good shepherd, we don't even want anything. He gives us everything we need. He leads us where we can have drink and food and shelter. He leads us where we can have safety, and he protects us in those places. He provides for us. So this is the picture here. He's saying that, I, that I'm a shepherd and I provide for you, but make no mistake about it, this is a unique, unique kind of a shepherd who multiplies himself. He's entrusting these things to these people. He's leaving. He's on his way out. But what he has given them in the gospel, he's entrusted to these people to take over. This is what this means. So I'm going to talk to some of you churchy folk for a second here. All right? There's a phrase that we often use talking about a pastor or a shepherd or, or teaching or preaching. And we say this phrase. I've caught it for the last probably 12 years. I'm not being fed. You heard that? Okay? All right. So about the time my child is old enough to articulate that they can't be fed, that's getting real close to the time where they can begin to feed themselves. And the ultimate goal here isn't that we would just need the under-shepherd and it would be fed, but that ultimately we would be fed by the good shepherd, Jesus, and then we begin to feed others. So for you churchy folk, just, just be careful how we use these words. Christian, you were created to trust and abide in Jesus Christ. You were created to feed on God's Word yourself. And when a child can say that they aren't being fed, they're pretty close to being where they can hold a spoon in their own hand. So also, you, Christian, can feed yourself. Here's what I'm going to do on a regular basis. I'm going to try to be a good shepherd. I'm going to try to point you to the good shepherd, Jesus. And I'm going to create a big meal every Sunday. It's going to be like 45 minutes worth. It's going to take you 45 minutes to digest this meal, right? Here's what I recommend. Take good notes because you can feed on the leftovers for a little while. Hopefully I give you more. I give you, hopefully I give you like some pure milk that's biblical. And it's the gospel, the good news of God's grace. But hopefully I throw out a slab of meat. You got to chew on and gnaw on. But here's what you're going to find out. Even if it's a big meal... One meal a week won't get you through the week. And nobody, nobody enjoys having leftovers all week long. Instead, I hope to give you a good, solid meal. But here's what's going to happen. As you feed on this, as we feast on God's Word and let it guide our paths, when you get hungry and you find that the leftovers don't satisfy you, hopefully you begin to open God's Word for yourself and you begin to feast on Him yourself. Here's what you, I think you'll find. You'll be able to prepare your own meal. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to have leftovers. And you're going to have enough for even the people around you. The goal of this shepherd is to multiply so that the flock increases. We point to Jesus as the good shepherd, and it leads us to the next particular relationship we have, and that is to the people who do not know Jesus. He didn't just hang out with people who liked him, but instead he went and it says he spent day and night. He tirelessly worked with people, even with tears. That means he felt rejection. You know what I think this means for us very briefly? There ought to be an awkward conversation about the gospel of Jesus in your life on a regular basis. You should have an awkward conversation about the gospel of Jesus once a day. And it should start in the mirror. That should be the first awkward conversation. You look in the mirror and you go, dude, you need Jesus. You really need Jesus. And you go, yeah, you're right. And you begin there and you say, the grace of Jesus Christ has been poured out for you. 
you sinner, you terrible, flawed person, right? You can't even open your eyes this morning. Look at you. Isn't it amazing that Jesus died for you? But then that awkward conversation that confronts our own nature with this good news of Jesus carries on around us. You should have an awkward conversation about Jesus at least once a day. Because there are people around us who need to hear. Did you catch that? It doesn't mean that they'll always agree. It says that he did it for three years. He didn't see day or night. And he admonished people with tears. You know, you have tears, right? Tears come from brokenness. Tears come from rejection. Tears come from being turned down. So you and I have been given the opportunity. And the relationships we have around us will begin to create a fruitful opportunity to share this good news. Because lastly, the relationship that you see here is toward himself. It's one of self-sacrifice. And now I commend you. Commend you to God and the word of his grace because it's able to build you up. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. So he didn't come in trying to make money off of these people. Now this is, this is a beautiful picture for church planting. Other churches supported him. We found out he's about to go to Jerusalem and minister to a church based on the generosity of the churches in Colossae and Philippi and Thessalonica. So also, this is something we want to do. Right now, we're starting this church based on the generosity of other churches, and then we're taking over. This is really cool. We've only been meeting for a year, and we're over two-thirds of the way there. That's how generous you people are. This is already happening. It's really cool. We have a savings account, right? How many one-year-olds do you know who have a savings account, right? This is, this is happening. But this is also something I want you to pray for me on. He says he coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. That's not necessarily true of me as a pastor. Some of you have some nice toys. You have some nice cars. You have some nice things. But oh, that our desire would not be to fit in based on those things, but that our desire would be that the gospel gives new life because those things have no power to give life. They'll end up in a landfill. And in all of these things, he worked hard. He poured out his life for these people. So much so that he said, I regard myself as nothing. In verse 24, he says, I don't even account my life of any value. Instead, he was willing to lay it down. Because as you see that relationships are your report card, you come to find out when you invest in people and when you deposit the gospel into their lives, the Holy Spirit even begins to change you and changes your understanding of the true story. The story isn't about you, it's about Jesus. And then the calling that Jesus gives us begins to be bigger than our own sense of self-preservation. Do you get how radical that is? That Paul didn't worship his family, his friendship, and his approval or his belonging, but instead he was willing to leave that for the sake of the mission. Paul did not worship the mission, and he did not worship achievement, but neither did he worship his approval and relationships. So here's how I'll close this and apply it to you. For some of you, you need to embrace the tension between what God has done and the thing that you think you're on this earth to accomplish and then the people around you who are here with you. So for some of you, it terrifies you. This, this picture of crying when you leave, it terrifies you. And you need to get out of the nest. You need to step out of your comfort zone. Stop hanging around with all the people who agree with you. 
Stop only talking to people about Jesus who already agree with you that he is who he says he is. Jump out of the nest. Jump out of the idol of approval. Jump out of your comfort zone and see that God is already there. Jump out. But for some of you, you worship achievement. You know what you need to do? You need to weep with someone. You get this picture of of the type of relationship that fosters fruitfulness in the gospel? Ask yourself the hard question. Who other than the people you're related to would weep if they were going to say goodbye to you today? Who would weep if you said, I'm leaving, I'm moving, and I'm never coming back? Who would genuinely weep and recall with fondness the ways in which you had wept together? And so for you who are driven by achievement and accomplishment and you think your identity is not in approval per se, but in your own sense of accomplishment, I say to you, go weep with someone. Go love some, someone so much. Be so vulnerable. Invest so deeply that it hurts. Because when you do, and when you realize that that kind of love is radical and selfless, then and only then do you encounter the selfless and beautiful love that God has shown to you and me in Jesus Christ who left his comforts of heaven to be in the mess with the pigs like you and me. And he loved those who were lost so much that he was willing to leave and leave the task to you and to me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are good. We thank you so much that you are faithful. We thank you so much that uh, you have done for us in your son Jesus, that which we could never do for ourselves. And you've done so not begrudgingly, but you've done so freely and, and mercifully. So for some in this room, they've man, just never heard this good news and never heard that God loves them so much that he sent his son to die. Would, would you begin to inspire them with a picture of this good shepherd? A shepherd that draws lost sheep like us back into this fold of God. Would you begin to inspire us and compel us to believe faithfully, to believe wholeheartedly in this shepherd that wasn't willing to watch his sheep wander off, but instead he came to die in the sheep's place so that he could carry them all the way back to the Father. But for those of us in this room, maybe we, we know this good news. We've heard it. We've been changed by it. It's changing how we live and what we believe. Would you continue to inspire us to see all of the ways in which you have called us to love and shepherd and care for the people around us. Starting first with ourselves, that we would care over our own self, that we would lead ourselves, sometimes awkwardly, painfully, even with tears, toward the throne of Jesus. May we run to you. May we run to you with with a reckless sense of abandon. But will we also be inspired by what you've done for us that we would begin to lead others? Help us to love you so faithfully and so powerfully that it compels others to have a taste and a hunger for it. Help us to live by your word. Not just in these moments where it's convenient and it's being fed to us, but also in the moments where we are truly hungry and desperate. May we seek you and have you speak to us words of grace and acceptance and adoption. God, we want to make much of you even though we don't deserve to. But we want to declare how good you are, that you are the lamb. You're not only the good shepherd, but you took the place of the lamb that was slain so that all of your sheep might have life 
We declare this good news in Jesus' name. Amen.